Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're listening to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast with Owen Murph. Hello there, Owen. And Simon. Hey. Hey, guys. We've all heard Paul O'Connell's ex-teammates line up to salute his brilliance in the days since he retired. But what was it like to line up against the guy and literally trade punches with the big man? I think we all know the person we need to ask, right, Murph? It's Jamie well, if Cudmore. If you're talking punches, then it's Jamie Cudmore. It's Jamie yes. Cudmore, yeah. Most famously, they locked horns in the t- 2008 Heineken Cup. Well, well, punched the heads off each other, yeah. yeah. Do you want to so Paul O'Connell's, Paul O'Connell's going through the various publications, radio stations, TV stations in Ireland that have been talking about him over the last few days. Mm. He's Ron O'Gara is talking about Brian O'Driscoll. This is all great. And then he has a look at uh, what second captains have lined up. <laughs> Jamie Cudmore. Well, I, I think that there was... It wasn't that it was just this incident. It, it, it From this incident... There was a great, you know, groundswell of just low-level hostility between the two for many years thereafter. But the incident in question in the 2008 uh, Handing Cup game in Thoman Park basically was there seemed to be a little bit of a row, and then out of nowhere, Jimmy Cudmore punches Paul O'Connell, a delightful little uppercut, and then O'Connell is looking at the touch judge to see if he's seen this. Mm-hmm. So O'Connell's kind of, you know, pleading with his eyes and with his hands to the touch judge. I hope you've seen that. Uh, but while he's doing that, Cudmore lands another one on him, uh, at which stage Paul O'Connell is like, well, I think I've shown as much restraint as any human being could be expected to show at this juncture, and uh, and proceeded to, to get into it with him. It's interesting watching it back when the, the commentators called it right. They actually saw the Cudmore uppercut, which started the whole thing. Because this, the second punch you mentioned from Cudmore there arrived and split second later, O'Connell has punched him back. He's ready, he's ready for that one. But the first one was the, was the one that really sparked it all off. And the commentators copped onto that. But oftentimes referees and touch judges don't. And it, the easy thing is to say, right, you're both getting yellow carded or you're both, get, both getting red carded. In this case, Paul O'Connell only got... Paul O'Connell immediately is around to the referee saying, listen, here, what am I supposed to do not defend myself? He's yeah. audibly stating his case. And Cudmore is mouthing at him. It's this really toxic stuff. <laughs> then Cudmore gets the red, O'Connell gets the yellow, and they're still mouthing each other going off. It looks like it's about to go off again. 
at that point because you can see Cudmore's... Uh, I love the mixture of self-restraint from Paul O'Connell. You yeah. know, the better thing to do here is for my team, for me not to go off. And then one extra punch is, I'm going to kill this guy. We'll talk to Jamie Cudmore today. The teams are in for Ireland against France. Joe Schmidt with three changes. Simon O'Brien for... Sean O'Brien back in. No surprise there for Tommy O'Donnell is on the bench. Rob Carney's in for Simon Zebo and Dave Carney for Keith Earls. Yeah, Tommy O'Donnell was brilliant against Wales, but ultimately, uh, Sean O'Brien, based on how good he's been for Ireland Leinster, he kind of had to come in. And then with Zebo and Earls, Schmidt explained, both were sort of fine. Earls was coming back from a suspecting cushion, passed all the return-to-play protocols, is expected to pass the one tomorrow, but he has to name his team today. So essentially, Earls was out because of that. And then Simon Zebo couldn't fully straighten his knee. It sounded something like if it was, a, you know, he had no other choice, he would have been able to play Zebo as well, and he might recover by tomorrow. But again, has to name the team today. Um, so Rob Carney comes in there. Uh, would have been a ridiculously tight call anyway. So Joe's kind of forced into every change that he's made. He could have made changes in the second row. Dunnock Ryan could have come in, but really they're all such tight calls. I don't think anybody's going to have too many criticisms. But the main issue this week, we feel, given they've just played Wales, how attritional that game was, the likes of Jamie Roberts, as we discussed on Monday, running at them over and over. And then they have France, another huge team, obviously, and uh, Joe explains just how difficult it's been and just how little time they'll have this week. We had a very, very short window this week. We trained for 32 minutes on Tuesday and we trained for 63 minutes today. And uh, we, we will be very limited in what we do in our captain's run. As a result, that's the sum of our preparation for a huge test match because we, we can't afford to slip up. What do you say? They're 62 and 33? That's, that's not a whole lot of minutes. I mean, that's quite a short movie, Murph. I know you're a big film fan. I despair for, you know, the for uh, any movie proclaiming to call itself a real-life Hollywood blockbuster c- clocking in at a mere 95 minutes. <laughs> uh, I would like. I, I don't know how long Zoolander number two is, but I'm going to say it's a lot longer than 95 minutes. Does the French, t- does the Irish team look stronger for those changes, do you think? Not particularly. I think it looks like it has less pace. Um but you would ultimately trust Rob Carney more than you would Simon Zebo. I mean, everybody knows this. You trust him a bit more, but you also know there's probably less X factor. Yeah, so. we talked a lot about Rob Carney on the um, on the podcast on and Monday. And actually, the same with Dave Carney and Earls in lots of ways. Although Earls, his defense has got so much better in the last year that probably he may even edge Dave Carney in that area, given how badly Dave Carney went against Argentina. Six changes in the France team. So uh, good uh, continuity there. And given in the first game against Italy, it was almost a completely brand new team. Anything so. in particular? Any any one we should be looking out for has been brought in. The, well, the back three look really explosive. Teddy Thomas, we know from last season, a sidestepper, loads of pace, loads of flair and creativity, and puts others into space. Maxime Medar, their best fullback. Finally, they're picking him again. And Vakatawa, who was parachuted in from the seventh scene, was really good against Italy at times. But then Teddy Thomas and Vakatawa are also really suspect defensively, um, which is something that's been touched on about France for quite a while now. Yeah, and it was more than touched on by Eddie O'Sullivan on TV after the game and RT on Sunday. Sunday, yep, the match against Wales. I was blown away by how confident he was that we'll beat France, or certainly that we'll beat them in an attacking sense. He doesn't see them sticking with us at all and records will cut them to ribbons was the phrase that he used I, I was watching this thinking, oh, oh, that old that old chestnut where like, we go to Paris every every couple of years cut them to ribbons try time so we'll talk to Eddie about that shortly also on today's podcast we look at how Rory McIlroy could turn the Irish Open into the biggest party on the European tour 
right now. Let's get one of these. I've got a call here that says you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned, not you, no me. Okay. Ain't nobody with my click. We don't normally click. broadcast click. all the, the stuff click. that comes from scum click. around the country. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. Click, 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 click. I've heard the explosion, Murph. Time to talk. Mm. Evan Flynn has sent us an email to secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Hey, second captains, I'm a big fan of the show and one of my favourite parts has always been the song edits. As an Irish Leicester fan listening to last Thursday's show, you'd think Ken's dire and wrong-headed predictions would have stood out to me, but instead I was chuckling at Man U's continued misfortunes. The song My Own Personal Jesus happened to be on the radio right after and it seemed like a good enough idea that I put the attached clip together. Uh, hope you like it and don't mind me cadging your collective dulcet tones. It's a tribute to Mark's great audio work and certainly not an attempt to... Come at the king. So here's Evans' uh, offering. I wonder what Manchester United are going to do now. Reach out Just get Mourinho in. Just get Mourinho. I think you know me. I want to work. Profile his winning record, blah, blah, blah. Kind of trashy, a trashy figure. You know that I have a big self-esteem and a big... Uh... Jose. Kind of trashy. Give the people what they want. Come in, tear the club apart from within, and depart, leaving behind an accurate, festering swap of resentment and division. Jose. No doubt. No doubt. Get on the phone to Mendez. Kind of trashy. And it's going to be spectacular. The best manager. On the phone to Mendez. They have no choice but to turn to Jose. They owe it to football. Reach out and touch face. Don't you understand? It's already dead. The whole thing smells of death. So nice. Thank you, Evan, for well, your Evan. Uh, your contribution. Uh, Very little Murph from our own in it, but that's fine. Well, neither here nor there. Um, I think though that uh, producer Mark Horgan deserves a right of reply. So here it is, his unexpurgated reply, and I take care to affirm that this has not been edited shortened or polished by me in any way. To Evan Flynn, writes Mark, <laughs> your attempt showed promise but was missing the two fundamental components of any audio edit you'll hear on Second Captains. One, a wolf howl, and two, a soundbite from Steve Staunton. Please consider this if you ever consider coming at the king again. In the meantime, I've prepared a fresh audio edit just for you in response to your boastful mail and scathing criticism of my life's work. What's you, what are you saying? <laughs> I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you're a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. You can't teach that. Uh, get back in your box, Evan. Hold on a second. What? 
did Mark pull out the big gun? Dusty Rhodes, the yeah. American dream there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And Deontay Wilder. Evan got, <laughs> Evan got both barrels there. O- audio afraid. bed wars here. This, yeah. is, uh, this gets a little bit nasty. All right, Eddie O'Sullivan is ready to talk to us about the team. First of all, Eddie picked by Joe Schmidt for Saturday. Um, what do you make of the, the 15? I think considering the six-day turnaround, the guys who were dinged up with injuries and like Sean O'Brien coming back, and Stando's performance, I suppose, you mix it all up, you you probably get that team before they call it, you know. So I don't have any major surprises there. Um, I think, though, it, uh, getting O'Brien back is a big plus. Yeah, and we'll maybe get into what he's going to bring. But just on the personnel, Zebo apparently his knee was a bit sore. It didn't sound like anything serious at all, really. It's the kind of injury that maybe he could play through. But Schmidt bemoaned the short window that he has here and the lack of certainty around things. He said Earls needed another day, another stage of the head injury assessment would take place tomorrow and he reckons that's too late for him to be involved. Apparently, they only trained for 32 minutes on Tuesday and 63 minutes today, which uh, <laughs> which makes it hard to understand how, how a head coach is supposed to get a team into position to go to Paris. Well, I, I don't really think it's that much of a problem. You know, you'd like to always have more time, but even if he had more time, um, with an extra day, for example, he probably wouldn't have spent any more than 60 minutes on the field anyway, you know. And they would have done a lot of video work and organisation before they went on the field, and they would probably do some walkthrough line on stuff, you know, and their new variations. So, like, it's about freshness now with a six-day turnaround, even though it's early in the tournament. So, yeah, I, I suppose he'd like, he'd like another day, but I don't think he'd have spent this, you know, with an extra two hours on the field. You don't have that capacity. Um, and I think they're probably just tinkering with stuff now at this stage rather than any major changes. Um, it's probably more to do with the guys coming in uh, fresh that will be just getting their head around what their roles are more than anything else. You mentioned O'Brien and his role. How, how does his just his presence on the field and what he brings to it change what Ireland can do, maybe increase the options that Ireland have? Well, I mean, you know, he was going to be in the team last weekend had he passed the fitness test, so... He was always a starter, and he started for the obvious reasons. Um, you know, his ball-carrying ability, his work rate, his strength over the ball at the breakdown, it's huge. But I think as well, you know, it's no harm to have someone of his experience as well coming in, you know, around the team, an extra, I suppose, an extra leader on the field, you know. Um, even though, I suppose, to be fair, last week, you know, we didn't lack leadership, particularly when you saw we, we bounced back from, from falling behind to come and draw the game, so... But I still think it's so good to have somebody like O'Brien away from home. And, you know, the French will worry about him because he has the capacity, no matter who we're playing, to run over a few people every now and again. And that's those kind of go-forward situations are, are um, very important in terms of maybe turning the, the momentum of a game. So he's, he's definitely a guy you'd want going to Paris with you. Do you think, Eddie, that's ultimately a stronger Irish 15 than started against Wales? I think it's probably a more stable and more experienced. You know, Rob Kearney going back to full-back, um, I think, you know, the questions about Rob's form have been fairly, you know, been fair questions. He hasn't been really lighting it up. Whereas I thought Zebo last week uh, was really excellent with the ball in hand. I think he struggled a little bit uh, in the backfield when, when we didn't have the ball and he found himself out of position a couple of times. So I think Carney stabilised that whole backfield, um, the whole, you know, triumvirate of the two wings and himself working in tandem. Um, I suppose uh, we have extra maybe bit of punch around the field with O'Brien. Um, I think Dave Kearney, you know, we know he's he's a he's a class player, and I don't think we lose too much by him coming in. So I'm not sure it's a stronger team, but I think it's probably what you'd call a more stable team, a more experienced team. Um, and going away from home, that's no bad thing either, you know. And I think <clears throat> with the French, the way they are at the moment, 
the type of game they're playing. They want this kind of pretty much, I suppose, I suppose it's just a loose game with the ball being thrown around everywhere. Um, it's to have guys with experience who can control the tempo of the game and the pace of the game will be important. And again, someone like uh, Rob Kearney coming back in and uh, Sean O'Brien, those experienced heads will, will help that cause. Yeah, I was interested watching you on TV after the Wales game. Eddie, you were super confident, almost worryingly confident about what we're going to do to France. You do think that we can actually cut that team to ribbons. Well, you made that point on Sunday. You've seen the French team that's been named now. Do you still hold to that? By and large, I would, because I think, you know, whatever about our changes, I mean, Novis has not steadied his ship in terms of, you know, stabilising his selection. He's gone with six changes, which is kind of like, almost back to the revolving door selections of Mark Lavermont, you know, and we saw the, the chaos that ensued with that. Um, I suppose the one thing that jumps out at me is, and this was actually by accident, I think, rather than design, is Marmosa comes in for Gail Fiku, and Fiku is unavailable for personal reasons, so whatever, he's not there. Uh, you'd have to think maybe if he, was, if he was available, he would have been picked, but Marmosa, for me, may just stabilise their midfield defence at outside centre. He's, a, I think he's a smarter defender. He doesn't make as many bad reads. No, he's no world beater either, but I think that's an improvement. But in the overall context, the French defence system uh, last weekend was shambolic. I mean, they just seemed to have no idea what they were at. They couldn't get off their line. And one of the things I think will happen this weekend, if they defend the same way, is Madard at full back, who's still there, he came up into the defensive line very, very early and very, very far from his goal line, much more than to see any other full-back. He left acres of space in the backfield. And I think if they do that against Ireland, Jonathan Sexton will just pommel them into the corners. They'll never get out of their 22 when Ireland has the ball. And I think that's the sort of pressure Ireland can bring now if they pitch their tent you know, in the, the French 22. And I think you know, if I'm playing a team like France or, or a team in general that throws the ball around... My my initiative is to take that away from it, to stabilise the game and to slow it down. And I think you could see Ireland now playing a very a more strategic kicking game than we saw against Wales, where we kept the ball in hand quite a bit. And I think that strategic game could be very simply executed with uh, with Jonathan Sexton putting the ball in behind Madar and just keeping the French inside their 22. And if they want to run from there, let them off, because they had 19 turnovers uh, against uh, Italy, and if they replicate that in any way, shape or form, Ireland will absolutely kill them on, on the turnovers. You know, they will really hurt them. So I think I'd be surprised if we don't reel our game even a little bit, try to stabilise and not turn it into a game of sevens with, with 15 aside and, and ping Wales and, or ping France in the corners with, with um, taking advantage of Medards coming into the line. Now, if, if they have any sense... France should adjust to that and they won't have Medard coming in the line but they've been so disorganised and their, their defence coach according to Bernard Jackman is like a real rookie so I don't know I don't see any major changes plus the fact six personnel changes doesn't stabilise that and so I, I'm still trying to find a way where I can see France really causing us problems and the only way I can see it is if they get on the front foot and a lot of the passes stick and we for some reason fall off our defence which I thought was excellent in the second half last week. If we underperform in our defence, maybe they can cause us problems. But I'm still struggling to find a way around that for France. And, and um, I'd still be very confident on that basis. Eddie, what do you put that defensive naivety down to? Does it look like a coaching issue to you? The players change so much under every French coach that it's, it's hard to pin it on any player either. 
How, how can this be happening at such a, a high level of rugby? The French have never put a ton of emphasis on defence because it's, their, their, it's in their DNA, you know, the jouer, jouer is what they say, play, play, you know, and they, they, they buy into this thing about, you know, playing with the ball and, and we'll, you know, we'll score more tries than you will. And I think in the build-up to, um, in the two-week build-up to, to their game, they had, they had about a 35-minute defence session, which is extraordinary, with a new defence coach and a new squad. And the only coach really that put a huge value on defence, French coach, was um, was the French coach uh, that has now done such a great great job in, in Toulon, Bernard Laporte. He was very aware of defence, but um, Levermont and Saint-André didn't. And I thought French teams were vulnerable when you held on to the ball. And I think as well, there's a, there's a, one thing that hurts on defence is their, their fitness levels at top 14 are not as high as our fitness levels uh, in, in even in the Pro 12 and, and the, the Premiership in England and when you speed up the game against French teams they, they, they struggle to stay with the pace of the game and you saw last week even Italy when, this, when the game w- w- was, was uh, moved on a bit um, the French defenders were just not getting off the line they were playing laterally they were turning and playing into the backfield it was just kind of catastrophic defence so the combination of a new defence coach them not putting much emphasis on defence and I think their lack of, of fitness really is, is, a, is, a, is a dreadfully difficult, uh, I suppose, portion for them to see them defending well. I mean, they'll be physical if you run into them, but they'll have to catch you first. And I think that's going to be their problem against Ireland. I also think Ireland could probably use the mall against them. You saw how they capitulated in the mall against Italy last weekend. I mean, Italy just walked it into the end zone. It was just abysmal defence at the mall. So I think we'll see early doors, Ireland pinging the corners, building pressure. And if we get within 10, 15 metres of the line, we're going to be mauling the ball. And uh, I, I, if they don't change the things they changed last week, they're going to be in big trouble. No, that's uh, if they don't change. But I don't have huge confidence in them changing, given the personnel changes and the, 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 the new coaching regime. Eddie, I did want to ask you about the other big news of the week, Paul O'Connell's retirement, and not so much the, we've heard a lot of the eulogies of him as a player, but I'm interested from your point of view uh, to know what you think about the possibility of him going into coaching and how he would do. I mean, he's indicated in that interview on, on Radio 1 a couple, of, a couple of days ago that, you know, there are issues with that, that he's got a young family and he's not sure if, if he immediately wants to get into coaching given the demands on time etc but I don't know if any of us believe him. I think we all expect to see Paul O'Connell as a head coach at some stage what do you think? I think it's very possible without a shadow of a doubt the guy as I said is rugby is part of his DNA you know it's been a huge part of his life and it's hard to believe he'll walk away from it and, and never get involved again other than watching it on the touchlines with his son um, plus the fact he has a huge knowledge uh, of the game I mean as a line technician there's nobody in the world better than him. He understands Lionel's better than anybody else. Um, he's a good communicator. He commands huge respect. And um, he has a, he's a feel for the game as well. And he's been in the professional game long enough to understand how it works. But having said that, I think he's just retired. I think for him, he probably wants a break from the game of some description, even if it's only for a year, uh, just to get away from the game and clear his head. Um, and I'm sure if he comes back, uh, he'd want to come back maybe after a little break. But he's definitely down the track. If he, if he wants it, he would be head coach material. There's no question about that. But I think um, he'd probably know himself. He'd want to do some sort of an apprenticeship to get there. 
Yeah, so it sounds like that apprenticeship maybe would be best away from Munster, as Ron Nogara is doing. You know, if you go straight back in at Munster, be it as an assistant, Anthony Foley, or taking over from him in a year or whatever it is, that there might be a bit too much pressure attached to that, do you think? There would be pressure attached to it and expectation be massive. But I think, apart from that, I think it's probably good for him to go away and get an experience outside of Ireland. And, you know, when you're learning your trade as a coach, you make mistakes and make your mistakes somewhere else, learning in another environment. Um, and eventually, if he does come back to Ireland and to Munster, you know, he has that, that external experience under his belt. Um, I think that will be probably uh, something he'd look at as well. Um, it's always good, and Rowan is doing that to get you know a view from the other side. Um, if you, I suppose, if you go from the team you played for the coach that team, um, you know you you get locked into that environment, and you don't have the experience of seeing things from another dimension, which is all worthwhile. I mean, I, I myself went to America in my early days as a coach, and I learned hugely in America about the whole mechanics of coaching and, and the whole business of coaching by being involved in what was still an amateur sport in America, but that's the, the American coaching environment is so different no matter what sport you're in. So I certainly benefited from it and, and, and you know, really thought it was a big step forward for me to have that experience. And I think it's probably good for Paul to the same thing. All right, listen, Eddie, you brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, Rose. Thank you. Let's just keep the Paul O'Connell theme going for now because we've been hearing a lot from O'Connell's teammates since his retirement. We did want to hear from one of his opponents, Jamie Cudmore. You might not be surprised to hear that you were the first person that we thought of who sprung to mind for us. Did you enjoy your battles with O'Connell over the years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, no, we definitely had some good contests over the years. And, uh, yeah, to, to be honest, I was, uh, was kind of sad to, to see that he'd announced his retirement this week. 2008 is the one we all, that seared into all our memories, the Heineken Cup game at Tolman Park. Um, what do you remember of that? Oh, well, you know, it was just, uh, uh, yeah, we got in a bit of a, a bit of, t- a bit of a tussle and, uh, I figured it was going to be like the old hockey game where both guys go five minutes for fighting and that'd be the end of it. But unfortunately, I came off came off a bit worse for wear, but still a great game nonetheless. Is that level of animosity between yourself and O'Connell, is that real? Could that be real or is it kind of pantomime villain stuff? Oh, there's, no, there's no animosity at all. There's, you know, it's just, it just so happened that it was two guys... Trying to trying to do the best for their team, and uh, you know that's that's rugby. Sometimes it uh, it boils over a little bit, but there's uh, there's no real um, there's no there's nothing serious. He's a, he's a good rugby man as I am, and uh, once the final whistle goes, uh, there's uh, it's all handshakes and a, and a pint after the game. Did that happen back then? Do you remember? Did you have handshakes and a pint in 2008? Uh, no, we didn't have time for a pint, but there was definitely handshakes, and uh, there's always a mutual respect with the people you go to war with. But um, no, it's uh, as I said, that's uh, that's rugby. Sometimes it boils over a little bit, but um, the most important thing is it stays on the field. I think you you made sure there was no uh, there was no issue in 2014 when you guys played. There was a bottle of wine offered and accepted. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, had a little uh, tongue-in-cheek um, jest there. Right? And, uh, I have a wine label called Sinbin with uh, the yellow card uh, for our white and the red card for our, our red wine. And uh, I thought, oh, why, why not have a, a bit of a poke of fun of, at 08? And uh, I gave him uh, a bottle of white and I had the bottle of red myself. And uh, 
that was a, it was a pretty pretty funny little memory. What was he like to play against in in general terms? I mean, we've as I mentioned at the start, we've heard a lot of the guys who've played with him for Ireland and for Munster talk about his leadership and the way he would inspire players. Obviously, you're you be coming out of from exactly the opposite point of view. You're just seeing what he's like on the pitch. Can you put into words sort of the type of opponent that he was? Um, well, you know, definitely, you could see you could see those things uh, on the other side. You know, his leadership and uh, and how he uh, he really brought his team uh, together behind him, uh, and that's obviously uh, something extremely hard to play against. You know, he was extremely precise in the lineout, always uh, always making a, a lot of work around the ruck, uh, either in cleanouts and especially carries off nine, um, and those type of things really inspire uh, his team around him and, uh, and make it very difficult for whoever's uh, up against him. The, uh, you're talking about the you getting the red and O'Connell getting the yellow uh, back then. Is that still a source of uh, amusement? Do you feel that you you were both equally sin- sinner and sinned against? Oh well, of course. Uh, I I didn't think there was it merited a card at all. I could have just, uh, <laughs> just had a, had a stern talking to him and would have continued on. But uh, you know, that's it. Maybe I'm a little old school. Yeah. But um, yeah. you know, no, I I, I think it's uh, it's it's a bit funny to look back on it. But uh, definitely at the time, I was, uh, I was I was I felt a little bit hard done by. The teams are into us today. The Ireland France team six changes for France for this weekend and three changes in the Irish team. That's uh, a couple of them are injury enforced uh, I don't know if you've been following the team selections but uh, do you, would you be backing Ireland it seems like we've got a habit of beating France now over the last few years did it again at the World Cup obviously you saw those teams up close would you be backing Ireland you don't have to say it just because you're you're talking to an Irish podcast here Jamie no no but uh, it's funny funny you say that I was talking with uh, the other coaching staff uh, here with Canada this morning and uh, no we've, we've definitely given uh, Ireland uh, the edge um, I'm not, not, I, it's, 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 it's tough for me because, you know, I've got a lot of friends in the French team and I, and I hope they do well. It just in terms of, uh, you know, personal friendships, but, um, I think, uh, on a whole, the Ireland, the Ireland team looks pretty sharp. How are you getting on there with, with Canada? You're getting involved in some coaching? Yeah, I've been doing the forwards and the defense here for the last uh, few weeks here in Canada. I'm now down in Austin, Texas. Uh, we play the, the Americans on uh, Saturday night. So we're getting fired up for our big uh, cross-border rivalry. Um, that's always a huge game for us. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm very excited, and uh, the, the team's looking really good. Very good. Well, listen, Jamie, we wish you well. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Take care. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Hmm, Jamie sounds like a lovely fella, Murph, with mm-hmm. a somewhat lenient view of his own infractions during that game in 08. <laughs> don't know if he's, I mean, the YouTube clip has been watched a lot of times. I don't know if Jamie's revisited it at, uh, at any time. But fair play for coming on and, and chatting to us about O'Connell. We have got the backing of the Canadian coaches also, Simon, so it looks like we're we're set to go. Eddie is still, it seems super confident to me, Eddie O'Sullivan, about how bad this French defence is. Would you agree? 
uh, I always find it hard to cut out those hundred years of history <laughs> against France. And I admire when Irish pundits, Shane Horgan's been the same, just really confident when we go into France games. And I don't know, I'm just burnt by childhood. I just never imagined us going to... And it's not like we have a couple of 50-point drubbings under our belt over the last few seasons. It's always really tight. They always beat the hell out of us and we somehow emerge because we're smarter. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out now. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? No Ken, no problem, Owen, because uh, Richie Sadler sat in Ken's seat, put on Ken's smoking jacket, and continued Ken's valuable work in the area of extremely bullshy Premier League predictions. <laughs> ahead of uh, the top four meeting each other on Sunday. Yep. Uh, we also talked to Tony Barrett about Liverpool's climb down on ticket prices after the much-publicised walkout last Saturday, and Richie was in on that as well. Yeah, so it was great stuff. Tony, a lot of good stuff to say there. Murph, you were transfixed by the golf in Phoenix last weekend. You didn't stop banging on about it Monday through Wednesday, as the Americans mm. would say. Uh, I was, actually. Uh, and, you know, it, it probably... Well, it takes one thing for me to watch PGA Tour golf, and that's for an Irish person to be... Uh, at the at the the cutting edge, you wouldn't be alone. Yeah, so uh, I was hearing the chain. Larry was doing well, tuned in, and uh, the Phoenix Open, uh, and I think uh, I think it's played on the weekend of the Super Bowl every year. So I, I think that they do purposely try and do something different, just because the whole sports media landscape is taken over by one event. Uh, you know, it's, it's such as that for uh, for that whole weekend. Mm-hmm. So, um, what it it's it's. It's unlike anything I've ever seen, really. The 16th hole in particular, um, it's basically an amphitheater. Uh, the green par three surrounded on three sides. Uh, you can get, I think, like 15,000, 16,000 people into the grandstands. And uh, normal rules of golf for postponed, so nothing but shouting and screaming, uh, including on people's backswing. So basically, Bubba Watson and Ian Poulter at the Ryder Cup, only everyone has to play through that. Yeah. So... I mean, it maybe it is a little gimmicky, but at the same time, you're watching it thinking, well, this is one thing that you're not going to see at any other hole in golf for the rest of the year. Yeah. And, well, I, I know that I, for one, was waiting. I'd say Larry was doing really well. It was after midnight. I was like, I'm not going to turn this off until I see Larry and how he deals with this. And I'm not going to turn it off as long as Ricky Fowler's on the on the course. And it's the sort of thing that actually just keeps you watching. How did Larry deal with it? Uh, well, Larry dealt pretty well with it on Friday, uh, but on Sunday, now he dropped back a little bit. He finished tied for thirteenth. Uh, sorry, th- tied for ten. Uh, he was in the top ten, tied for six. Tied for sixth, yeah. Yeah. So he he hits uh, hits his uh, tee shot to about twenty feet, and as he's walking onto the green, I think you can hear it now. But as he's walking onto the green, he's been he's been uh, serenaded by sixteen thousand extremely drunk Americans saying USA, USA. I think we can take it up from there. He started walking away and he thought, uh oh, it's going to lip out. I think he knew it was going in. I did too. (laughs) And he was just showing off a little bit in front of the fans at 16. They appreciate that kind of confidence and showmanship, Jake. Yeah, they do. Uh, Leaving aside the extremely American sounding golf commentators there. Uh, So, yeah, Larry rolls in the putt five feet from the hole. He turns around, cups his ear. 
uh, <laughs> to the crowd. Dusty Road style. Yeah, d- quite Dusty Road style, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he goes in, picks up his ball, uh, and then like sort of waves to the crowd and they all give it the USA, USA chance again. So, I mean, I think the whole suits some people like Shane Larry. It may not suit everyone, but I have to say it was pretty good theatre. The numbers stack up incredibly well as well. You and Marie wrote a piece on this in the Irish Times website. Last week, almost 30,000 people turned up for Tuesday practice. 58,000 on Wednesday for practice. Over 100,000 for Friday's golf. uh, For Thursday's golf, I should say. 160,000 for Friday's golf. 201,000 people. I don't know how they fit around the course on Saturday. And by the time the uh, Ricky Fowler had been beaten by Hiriki Matsuyama in the playoff, an aggregate crowd of 618,365 yeah, had so watched it, which is about three times what saw the British Open in July. Yeah, and so about 65,000 came in for Sunday. But I mean, again, that's the impact of the Super Bowl. Exactly, yeah. Uh, to, and it was the Super Bowl was on early in that time zone. So, I mean, still, outrageous numbers. So big numbers, liberal enough attitude to getting boozed up and possibly abusing players. Creates this raucous atmosphere, an atmosphere that could someday be replicated here in Ireland. Lawrence Donegan is going to chat to us about this. Lawrence, good to talk to you as always. How are you doing there, Owen? We're doing good, yeah. We've been outlining some of the insane numbers that were hit during the Waste Management Phoenix Open uh, in terms of the spectators and all the rest of it, and uh, outlining a bit about the atmosphere as well. Are you a fan of the tournaments? I absolutely love it. Although I tell you, I have to before we go any further, that is the worst name for any golf tournament ever. <laughs> <laughs> the Waste Management Open. And no offense to Waste Management, obviously. Mm. Um, They're not listening, Lawrence. You're yeah, fine. Yeah, the Tony oh, Soprano I... Waste Management Open has a better, <laughs> slightly better ring to it. I see. You'd be surprised about your uh, your audience ship. I mean, it's amazing. It stretches. I get I bump into people in San Francisco all the time who go on about you guys. So there you go. But you're a big fan of it. Uh, you've you actually played the course. I, I, have, I understand. Yeah, and believe it or not, I, I played it maybe about six weeks ago. So everything was built uh, on the 16th. Uh, it's amazing. It's it, it, it is like the, at the Coliseum kind of. Obviously, it's not round, but you see, you walk off the 15th green and you walk through into this tunnel and you and then you come out. It's it's like a cathedral. It's like a a football stadium. It is absolutely incredible. I mean, when we play, obviously the stands are empty, but it's still very, very intimidating. It's it, it's a magnificent scene. It really, really is. It's not a particularly memorable hole. I mean, it's like in a bog standard par three, but it's a, a, just the, the most incredible thing. And I've been there during tournaments, and it's. I mean, is that a good old Scottish word? It's just mental. It's, it's fantastic. It's a yeah. great thing. Well, that's inter- really interesting that you had that perspective having played it, that even when it was empty, it felt it felt quite intimidating. I can only imagine what it's like when there's 15,000 people crowded around. Yeah, and especially on a Friday afternoon. All the players, they rather, when you're a player, the first 36 holes, you either get an early early Thursday uh, you go so early Thursday, late Friday, or late Thursday, early Friday. And all the players are begging for a late Thursday, early Friday, because Friday afternoon, because everybody, everybody in Phoenix leaves work early, they get there at lunchtime, so about four o'clock on Friday afternoon, it's absolute bedlam. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, it's brilliant fun. Is that not what the players want, though? This is what we've been reading about this tournament. They love being involved in this because it's something a little bit different. It's a bit more raucous. It's a bit, more, it's a bit less stuffy than usual. Yeah, uh, yeah, you kind of wonder though, but uh, again, it just adds to the tension. And uh, I mean, some players are a bit. Obviously, there's a sort of level of noise there, but I mean, if it, if people are drunk, they're sort of, they tend to kind of there's more propensity to shout in people's backswing. It's just uh, the level of raucousness on a Friday afternoon 
really gets quite high. Same on a, on a, on a Saturday afternoon as well. Sunday, not so much, because the Sunday is always a Super Bowl Sunday. Mm-hmm. So they never, you know, people are you know, off watching the, 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 the NFL but that Friday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, it's uh, it's pretty wild. Yeah, I was actually watching it on Friday, and I was uh, Ricky Fowler. I was watching Ricky Fowler's group, and Ricky was absolutely loving it. Uh, and then was it Smiley Kaufman? Is that the guy's name? He yep. comes on. And he needs like you know two birdies in the last three holes, and I'm thinking. Hmm. You know, if if I'm safe for the weekend, this is a bit of a laugh. But it, you know, if I'm playing for my livelihood, I'm not entirely sure if I if I want you know the decibel meter in the bottom left hand uh, side of the screen reading you know eighty uh, eighty whatevers. Uh, you know, like they, when yeah. you're actually playing for your livelihood, it's not. Maybe maybe players are a little more hesitant about the the noise than they're willing to admit. Uh, well, there is a bit of that, but before we get into it, Smiley Coffey, I think he won. I think he won somewhere early in the year or early late last year. So he's not playing for his livelihood. He, I think the check was one point four million dollars. <laughs> okay. so he's not struggling. <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, uh, again, I think there's a, a general acceptance that it's a kind of once in a year type of thing. When I watch it, though, I just wonder why don't they do this more often? You know, because here we are. You know. It, it, it's a you know the, the tour has been finished for a couple of days and we're still talking about it. It's it's a real talking point. It, you know, do you, they should do it more often. What do you mean I, by this? What do you mean by do it more often? What exactly do they do well, that get six hundred thousand people through the door? Well, well, but there's places they could go. So you go to the Players' Championship on um, in, in at the TPC in Florida, and that's uh, that's. Quite, you know, around the 16th, 17th, you know, the Island Green Home. Yeah, yeah. That's a kind of banks there, and and that can get pretty wild as well, actually. But they could really turn, they could really turn it up and be, make it a real kind of talking point, because the whole, I mean, I guess in a bigger question that we could go on for hours about about, you know, where is golf? You know, the, the level of stuffiness, and uh, you know, it's t- it's time to kind of, you know. Turn it up a little bit, you know, and and try and get people's attention and try and make it a bit more oh, interesting. And as I say, that that the, the Phoenix thing is, is brilliant. It's a great it's a great talking point. It's great theatre. It's great TV. I mean, it might not be great for uh, Smiley Kaufman as he's trying to you know stick a nine iron to ten feet, but you know, tough luck, Smiley. You know, it's um, you know, let's just go let's get on with it. You know, you've got another fifty one weeks of the year to make a million and a half dollars. The TV point is interesting because obviously it looks like a lot of fun to be there, especially if you're taking a half day from work on a Friday mm. and, and going nuts. But that also translate to, translates to atmosphere that you can actually pick up watching on TV. And this ties into what we're talking about in the football podcast today, the whole debate around ticket prices for the Premier League. A lot of supporters groups are saying, listen, the reason people around the world want to watch the Premier League is because of us. It's because of the tribal elements right. and the fans. and Because it's just about affordable for us to go... Uh, uh, well, it's not affordable for a lot of people to go now at the moment, uh, and that w- this is actually you're, if you price us out of it, this is where you lo- you le- then start losing what the product actually is. Then that maybe ties in a little bit with what you're talking about there. That because the tickets are quite cheap, because they get fans in through the door to enjoy themselves, it actually looks great for the TV audience. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, look at the Bundesliga. I'm sure you already talked about it in the football, but you know, in Germany, look what happens. They're having the same issue with the NFL over here as well. You know, the, the people are realizing that the TV experience at home is so much better. It's obviously cheaper, 
So people, you know, you're looking at you know NFL stadiums that are half full. It's 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 a it's a difficulty. But or test cricket, Lawrence. You know, if you sit down and watch the West Indies playing Australia in a you know what is a very important uh, match that people have paid millions of uh, dollars to show on their television networks, and no one's at it. No I mean, one's at it. No, no one's at. Yeah, and uh, again. Uh, it's not something. I mean, the PG Tour is again. It's nowhere near the level of football or NFL in terms of um, fans going to events. But it's you know, there's nothing less appetising than turning on the golf, American golf, on a Sunday night or a Sunday afternoon where I am, and you know, it's two men and a dog standing at the side of the fairway, uh, and 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 you know, there's a terrible spectacle on TV. Um, so th- this kind of thing, you know, encourage people to get there, make it a real experience for them, because they really do. The, the tournament Phoenix is everything is catered towards the, the fan experience, and really, you know, a terrible American phrase, jacking it up, <laughs> you know, giving people, you know, inviting them to make an atmosphere. I mean, ticket prices aren't especially high. It's a, it's you know. They should do it more often. They really do. And as I say, it kind of all ties into, you know, what is golf? What is professional golf? Is it, you know, kind of dull, elderly, late middle-aged people sort of sitting in the little chairs at the Masters? Or is it something like this? I mean, the Masters has its own brilliance and its uniqueness. But this Phoenix event is 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 magnificent in its own kind of way. Rory McIlroy had his people there meeting the the guys involved in the... There's a funny, there's a charity element to this as well. This Thunderbirds charity group, which uh, is involved here, distributes its share of income to needy causes, apparently. And last year, that took up all of the tournament's profits. They actually gave out to causes around... Arizona, which is not normally what we think of when we think of uh, high-level sport, that sort of element. But the chief executive of Rory McIlroy's charity foundation, who obviously take care of the Irish Open, has been over there meeting these guys to see what they can do. How transferable is this kind of tournament, do you think, this kind of atmosphere to uh, an Irish setup? Well, I I, I think there's a chance. I mean, because the Irish Open is one of the, the best attended uh, events on the European Tour always has been. I can go back when I was when I was caddying on back in mm-hmm. <laughs> at, at Druids Glen in the Irish Open. I couldn't believe the number of people were there. It, it, it was, if you go back to the heyday back in the nineties, Irish Open, the crowds were astonishing, and uh, and even last year, you know, b- big crowds as well. It was terrible at Royal County Down, but you know, people got out there. Uh, I think the K Club is a perfect. I'm not saying. They can transform it into, you know, the TPC Scottsdale and however long it is to go before Rory's event, three or four months. But it's a, it's a, it's a perfect place to do it. Um, the crowds would be big enough. Uh, be a lot, you know, people would, I think people would love it. I think there's a chance to do it. Um, and as for the charity element, that's actually, believe it or not, the PGA Tour in America is a, does have charitable status. That's another podcast for another day. Right. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, all the PGA Tour events have some kind of charitable status where they... So Phoenix isn't unique in that sense. But again, they do a, they do a, good, a good job and they do a good job of getting the message out that's what they're trying to do. But as to your original question, I, I think it's a, it's a really good idea. And there's been kind of change at the top of the European Tour uh, in the last year. It's got a new CEO, a guy called Keith Pelly, Who's a really seems to be a really modern, go ahead kind of guy. He's already talking about players wearing shorts during tournaments. Not a big deal, but still, it's something. 
um, stuff like that, and I'm sure he would go for, for something like that. And I know for a fact that Pelly, the new CEO of the European Tour, and McElroy are our best buds, you know, you know, Pelly is really trying to, you know, he's bending over backwards for anything that Rory wants, Rory gets. And I think he under- appreciates that the players, the European Tour is all about the players and especially about players like Rory. And if McElroy fancies turning that into, uh, you know, a, the Irish Open into a kind of Phoenix uh, Open type thing, then I think the European Tour will do everything it can to help him. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> it would be a notable reversal of fortunes for the Irish Open, which looked dead and buried a few years ago, yeah, not getting so. And now it's going to be like the Hong Kong Seven Super Party of the European Tour. This is amazing. Well, that that was the only drawback. I mean, no offense, <laughs> but uh, I, Phoenix, I, we know what's coming here, Lawrence. No, no, Phoenix in February is a slightly, you know, well, you never know. I think it, the, the weather, we'll leave it. This the weather slightly more predictable than you know uh, the K Club in May. Uh, that's the only thing. But again, I, I remember well remember the, the Ryder Cup. I mean, the weather in 2006 was atrocious. But I mean, that didn't detract from the atmosphere. That was a, that was a, pretty, uh, that was a pretty good deal. I'm just actually trying to think of a hole at the K-Club that would be well suited mm-hmm. to the, the cathedral dome of, you know, uh, you know, 50-foot high bleachers or whatever. It'd be, uh, it could be something. It would be, it would be a great thing, wouldn't it? I just think it would oh, yeah. be a fantastic thing. All right, Lawrence, we'll, we'll let you go. Our boy, U.S. Murph, is playing Pebble Beach with you, amongst others, we hear. You're, ha- you're hanging out together this week. Uh, will you give him a massive mashed potato on his downswing if you're watching him? Well, absolutely. <laughs> I will throw a beer. Uh, I love Phoenix Open. I'll throw a, an empty beer glass at him or something. <laughs> Lawrence Donegan, brilliant stuff. Thank you. All the best, mate. Okay, okay, okay. I don't mean to rain on this parade here. We've, yourself and Lawrence have both spoken well about the appeal of mm. this tournament. But the waste management Phoenix Open, yeah. Lawrence has also pointed to the downside of these type of supporters, Murph, the slightly more boorish element mm-hmm. of golf fans. And I do think that if a tournament like this was marketed in a certain way in Ireland, you would get a lot of people to go along and, and enjoy the event more so than caring about the golf. Yeah. Where we we have we're in Ireland we have both a lot of hardcore golf fans and a lot of people who'd happily turn up and drink quite a lot and do the mashed potato thing mm. if they really had to. When you get down into that though, do is that really what we want to see? Yeah? Yeah. I <laughs> it think is. So, to be honest. Mashed potato? I mean, Lawrence came up with the the one downside as far as Lawrence is concerned, and it's a valid complaint, or a valid, you know, concern, uh, is the weather. Now, I mean, what's gonna make a rainy day slightly better for a golf fan is a few beers. Mm. So, I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily a massive a massive issue for us. I mean, I think that there is, obviously, there is uh, a lot of extremely old golf clubs in Ireland and maybe there, you know, there, there, there might be some concern amongst the membership of Definitely, some yeah. of the more high-class golf, cl- golf clubs in Ireland that may be a little concerned at the route the Irish Open might go down. But at the same time, they couldn't find a sponsor a couple of years ago. Rory McIlroy has come in and put a lot of his own personal reputation on the line here to get as many of the best players in the world to come to this event. I mean, I think that there's every chance to... And again, it's, it, it's very much a case of if, if, you, if you try this for a couple of years and it doesn't capture the imagina- imagination of the Irish sports fan, you still have a golf tournament. And, and uh, the point that Lawrence made there as well is like, you know, the K-Club might be able to do something like this. I mean, it's a former Ryder Cup venue. I mean, I don't think you'd be trying it at Baltray or, you know, maybe not even Royal, uh, Royal County Down. But, I mean, I think if you if you can tailor venues 
to include something like this, why wouldn't you try it? What I'm more excited about is seeing Shane Lowry produce that showmanship at Rio 2016, mm. only a few months away from the Olympic Games. Then people aren't really talking about it very much just yet. Obviously, there's a good few majors still to get through, but that top 10 finish has him hovering around the top 20 in the world rankings and miles inside the comfort zone to qualify for the Olympics. Lowry and McElroy will be our two boys. Yeah, that's the, that's the plan at the moment. And... There is still a chance that we could have that we could have three players. You're not limited to two players or anything like that. No. So if if you have four players inside the top fifteen in the Olympic golf rankings, so it's it's slightly there. It's the same metric, the same metric as the World Golf Rankings. But basically, you can the maximum number of players is uh, from any one country is four. Mm-hmm. So. Between Graham McDowell's current world ranking and the number one world ranking, there's, I think, 30 uh, US golfers. So 26 of those guys are immediately out of the running to compete in the Olympics. So effectively, Graham McDowell is in the top 45, 46, in the uh, top 45, 44 in the, in the world to get to the Olympics. And he just needs to, himself, Shane Lowry and Rory McIlroy, if they're all inside the top 15, then... The three of them can play. So it's not enough for him game. just to be in the top sixty, Mattel, because there's already two. And the only the, you mentioned the figure four there. That only applies for players in the top fifteen. In the Once top you go 15. outside the, t- the top fifteen, it's not going to be any more than than two. Than two, yeah. So I mean, it, it, if if you look at it like that, there's more than two Australians in the top sixty in the world. More than two South Africans in the world. So the numbers keep coming down, keep coming down. So if McDowell could recapture some of his 2010, 2011 form there is actually a chance that he could force his way into that top 15, uh, thereby getting another Olympic qualification place for us. Now, at the moment, it probably looks more likely than not that McElroy and Shane Larry are our two highest-ranking uh, golfers in the world rankings and in the Olympic golf rankings. Uh, that will be our team. But I wouldn't discount Mac, uh, McDowell completely either. I mean, it, it, it goes, the, it's the same way for uh, the other Irish golfers as well. Of course, if Paul Dunn wants to go on a three or four mm. win uh, season this year or Harrington, then um, then that's the aim. That qualification process does explain quite clearly why the why they've gone for stroke play here. May, maybe in the sense that we don't know at the moment there could be, well, we'll know there'll be four Americans for a start, but there could be two Irish, could be three Irish, might be Nobody from Scotland might be one. There are a lot of variables there before knowing what country. It's not a matter of just every country is represented by two people and that uh, keeps it relatively simple. So I suppose that does explain. I still think there could be a match play format. Clearly there can't be a Ryder Cup type format, but there could be some sort of a match play format within that rather than the stroke play that they've settled on. Yeah, the the cutoff point is July the 11th, I believe. July the 11th. Um, So there's still plenty of time between then and the Olympics to draw up a good (laughs) good match play format. uh, You know, it's not completely beyond the bounds of possibility. But yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of people are actually uh, really interested in just, I mean, it's a brilliant chance of a gold medal for Ireland. So why wouldn't we be in the in just how the Olympic golf tournament is going to shake down? So that's where we are at the moment. Uh, McDowell would need something. But well, he would need something good. He wouldn't need something. He wouldn't need a miracle. He would need a very, very good season. Quick word in the GA this weekend. A lot of people are going to be focusing on the Six Nations and the big Premier League games on Sunday, which we feature in depth during the football podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of GA on TV as well. Though. The National Hurling League starts this weekend. Waterford Kilkenny, the standout game of the weekend. But the club football semi-finals are on this Saturday as well. And I always find this quite strange that there are times so as not to be on at the same time as the Ireland rugby game. And this is the sort of thing where 
if the GA have like three weeks of people telling them, well, here, listen, you can't fix those games, you know, at the same time as, remember the Leinster Munster, the mm. Hiding Cup semi-finals, can't fix any games now, well, that's on. And that kind of puts them in a situation where like, well, kind of have to fix them at that time now, don't we? <laughs> but uh, the, the, the football club semi-finals are on at 4.30 and 6.15, which is not really the times you would expect those games to be on at in February when they'll both have to be played under lights. Certainly finished under lights, anyway. That's Clonmel commercials against Ballyboden and Cross McGlenn against Castle Bear. Uh, they're both live on TG Car. And to be honest, if you're thinking of watching Wales Scotland, then TG Car don't want anything to do with you anyway. So you're free to do what you like. But uh, those two games will actually be be pretty interesting. Having seen Cross McGlenn and Castle, uh, Castle Bear up close and personal in their respective provincial finals in November. I would say the winner of that will go into the final as uh, as heavy favourites. That's pretty much it from us. Do make sure to rate the podcast on iTunes. Leave a comment there as well. You can have a listen to the football podcast. We've plugged it a couple of times. Great chat with Richie on, on the massive weekend coming up for all four teams at the top of the Premier League and also the Liverpool ticket pricing saga that's drawn to a close over the last 24 hours or so. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Murph. Thank you, Simon. Thanks again. We'll talk to you after the weekend. Enjoy. How fun is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.